Hello and welcome to Science with Dr. Carl. I'm Linda Mariano and coming up in this episode, do you get squeamish at the sight of blood? Dr. Carl will discuss that, plus getting pollution in your lungs, all of your different brains, and we'll even get a lesson in operating on fish. Let's do it. Oh, good morning, Dr. Linda. How are you today? I feel good. I actually feel like there's a few people around work that are a little bit sick and I'm really trying to fight it. And I remember you once told me that you think that taking zinc works in the lead up to getting a little bit A sick. bit of a cold. Yeah. Um, it works weekly, but you need to have, by weekly I mean not very strongly, not as opposed to once a week, oh, once okay. a fortnight. Yep. Okay. And you need to take 50 milligrams, not the two or three. And um, it's quite safe because some people take it in a dose for a long time. But it doesn't work for everybody, but it's better than vitamin C. It's, it's a little bit more effective than vitamin C. How are you? Uh, I'm ever so peachy keen. I'm, have been, I had eight hours sleep last night. Do you, you get eight hours sleep? No, I don't. I remember we, us talking about this, but mm. last night I actually had unbroken sleep and probably around seven hours, ah. which is very nice. Yeah, yeah. Ten, ten is good. Um, ten? I'm doing, I'm doing, if you can get it every now and then just for fun, I'm doing a story about some people who have a genetic mutation so they can survive and function perfectly well on four hours sleep. But I've only done two hours. I need another four hours to do that story before I can give you a two-minute explanation. Wow. Okay, I'm fascinated by yeah. that. Because a lot of par- young parents, you know, like new parents would have to be surviving on very little sleep. It's terrible. So what Mary and I did was do it in shifts. And so in my case, I'd do the later shift between midnight and dawn. And depending on what was on TV meant that the kids got really good exposure to World War II uh, German... Uh, history. (laughs) Let's get into science this week with Dr. Brandon from Lang Lang. How's it going? Very well, thank you, Dr. Brandon. Welcome. And your comment or your question? Um, I was just wondering if, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie uh, Limitless with uh, Mm -hmm. Bradley Cooper in it. Um, If it it was um, any part possible to do what he does in the movie and um, take some sort of medication to unlock the rest of your brain or, or some some um, part that we don't use, you know, because as they say, we only use 15% or something like that. Um, ah, they lied about that. That started off at the beginning of the century where somebody wrote in a book that we do not use all of our full potential and then about 20 years later it got turned into the foreword for the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People in 1938, where they turned the we do not use our full potential into you use only 10% of our brain. So when you say you don't use your full potential, like if you don't do tennis lessons, you're not as good a tennis player as you are. If you don't do swimming lessons, you haven't unleashed your full potential there. And in fact, if you uh, look at the brain, you're using all of it at some stage, but not all at the same time. If you use all of your brain at the same time, that is called status epilepticus. You're having a very bad epileptic fit and you might not have enough brain power to coordinate your breathing. So in the same way that you don't use all your muscles at the same time, but you use them over a period of day, you will use all of your muscles, you use all of your brain. So in that movie, saying you can unleash more of your brain, you're pretty well using most of your brain anyway. Ah, 
Right, but you can train yourself like swimming lessons, tennis lessons, etc., to unleash more of your potential. I would like to be able to take a pill and then suddenly find that my IQ is 10 times higher and I have just won a Nobel Prize and I'm a world-class Olympic gymnast and I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> hey, thanks, Dr. Brandon. Dr. Talia from Hobart, what's your science question? Hi, um, I'm just wondering why my fingernails are all really, really weak and bendy and they tear really easily and always have my whole life. But my toenails are really, really, really hard. My big toenails are really hard. They wear holes in my shoes. Ah, Okay, um, the answer to this would come from a person looking at you and that person is a dermatologist. So there's no rush, there's no medical emergency, but it's worthwhile just getting checked. You see, hair and fingernails are both counted as skin appendage, like I thought it's kind of unromantic to call hair a skin appendage. But anyway, so fingernails belong to the dermatologist and then they can just look at you and note it. Almost certainly it's nothing serious, but it's just worthwhile having on your medical record and it could be something that's easily fixable or not, but at least it's worthwhile chasing up. I do not know why. And when you find out, can you ring in and let us know? Yeah, I'm curious as well. Talia? Dr. Talia. Thank you, Dr. Talia. We'd love <laughs> Thank to hear from you. you. Dr. Jaden from Avoca Beach, what's your question about smoke? Hi, I was wanting to ask if um, bushfire smoke can be classified as a PM 2.5 pollutant. If not, what is it? Well, um, PM 2.5, the PM stands for particulate matter. And so bushfire smoke or cigarette smoke has particles in it, unlike vaping, which doesn't have particles. It's just a gas. So you vape out into the atmosphere and then the gas goes in all directions and it just vanishes and there's no solid particles. Now, the PM, particulate matter, 2.5, that means smaller than 2.5 microns. A micron is a millionth of a metre. Now, if you have big particles, they'll get picked up by the turbinates in your nose, which are bits of erectile tissue that force the air to go through a bendy path that goes left, right, left, right, and the air goes around the corner and the particles don't, and they get caught in the hairs and on your mucous membrane, you spit them out or you swallow them or something else. And then in your upper airways, the bigger particles, you've got hair called cilia, C-I-L-I-A, and they move in a curiously asymmetrical fashion, so they sweep all the crud that gets caught on them in the upper part of your airway, so that's from your neck down to, say, the end of the uh, trachea and a bit further, and it sweeps it up, and then several times a day you'll do this. You'll do a sort of swallowing motion, and you'll swallow your own internal crud, and it'll go from your airways, which is bad because it can never come out, and if it stays there, it's blocking your airways. It goes from there into your stomach, and then it comes out the other end on schedule along with everything else. Now, PM10s, uh, 10 microns or smaller, and they, can, they don't get caught by the cilia. They penetrate deeply into your lungs, and then the PM2.5s, being smaller, penetrate more deeply. Answer to your question, yes, there are some very small particles, and they are bad for your airways and they can cause all sorts of troubles. Um, we're very lucky in Australia having clean air. So today driving into Sydney, Sydney to the ABC, normally I can see to the horizon. Here I could see only about four or five kilometres. My son, when he was in Beijing, was once in a situation where the air was so bad that he could see less than the, dis the length of an Olympic swimming pool. So that's 50 metres. So people would appear out of the smog 
at 50 metres and people were dying from the dirty air. Dirty air kills. So in Sydney and in Melbourne, the dirty air is 50% due to burning uh, fossil fuels in transport vehicles and the other 50% from electricity. We're very lucky to have such clean air. So the bushfire haze over Sydney, it'll end up uh, killing a few people all over the east coast of Australia. Mm. I think it's due to the um, peat burning at Port Macquarie. I was going up to Port Macquarie about a month ago and I was flying in on the aeroplane at night and suddenly all the lights in Port Macquarie went out. And I thought, what? A blackout? But no, it was some incredibly dense bushfire smoke. We came down to land on the airstrip and suddenly the landing lights flickered into existence. I could see them and just as suddenly... They flickered out and the aeroplane engines went and we diverted to another airport. Say that that was to happen and you were in a context where you were, say, right near a bushfire Mm -hmm. and you're trying to get out of your house. How Does it really help to just have like a cloth over your What the people have been doing in Port Macquarie... What should you do? uh, ...is staying indoors and then putting a wet towel at the bottom of the door and just blocking the air. Okay. Honestly, it's not a lot you can do unless you've got a high-powered air conditioning system. With my son in Beijing, if they stayed indoors with the air conditioning, they didn't cough. As soon as they went outside, they coughed. So when I was a medical doctor working at the kids' hospital, I went out in winter at night to do a midnight-to-dawn shift. If I could smell wood-fire smoke in the air, I knew that that night it would be wall-to-wall with kids with asthma. Each one cost $2,500 a night to admit into casualty and the amount of that cost carried by the people who were burning the wood was zero. In economic terms, it's called a hidden externality. Maddie from Briagalon, what is your science question this morning, Dr Maddie? Hi, Dr. Cole. Hi, Dr. Luna. Um, I snore pretty bad, not all the time, but most of the time. And I'm just wondering, am I guaranteed to stop snoring if I get my tonsils out? Not guaranteed. It all depends on the cause. So when you're asleep, the upper airways, so that's from the back of your throat, and then down from the throat through the larynx and into the trachea. The trachea is a pipe. It's about 15 centimetres long. It's got some 23 cartilaginous rings keeping it open, kind of like the rings on a vacuum cleaner hose. But the rings are not complete. They're, they're like the letter C. And in the upper airway, you don't have these rings. You've just got tissue which is held where it is by muscle tension. When you get sleepy, the muscle tension goes down and then the air going over it can make it like ripple like a flag rippling in the wind and you've heard a flag making noise, well, then your airways make noise. In addition to that, you can have slightly large tonsils or too large tonsils. Uh, So I'd really recommend going to see a GP and then follow their advice. One of the problems with snoring is that you can end up with sleep apnea. Sleep is a word meaning sleep. Apnea, A, means not, and pnea is a Greek root meaning air. So you suddenly go, breathe, 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 and then nothing. No breathing for, wait for it, 10, 20, sometimes 40 seconds, followed by a, (gasps) as you start breathing again, and you end up, we don't know exactly why, having other problems such as high blood pressure. Okay, so in this case, definitely it's good that you rang, definitely see your GP and uh, follow down that pathway. Is, is that a good 
good thing you, to... Yeah, so my, my tonsils are pretty big, like little golf balls. Do you oh. think I should risk it for the biscuit and get them out? Or? Uh, I would... There's an old Polish saying, if you've got a dog, don't bark, okay? I'm not the person with the knowledge. The person with the knowledge is a mixture of the GP and the surgeon and the ENT, those three people. They're the dogs. They've got the knowledge. They're the ones to bark. You don't want, like, I mean, you wouldn't ask a plumber for advice on cooking, although I do love plumbers because without plumbers we have no civilization. That's true. Dr Maddie, thank you for your call this morning. Dr Carl chatting science with Dr Mark from Brisbane. What is it? Hello. Dr Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. As fresh water around this country and around the world seemingly gets scarcer. Where is all that water going? Ah, um, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find something called, I forget the name of it, the water cycle, the hydrological cycle, the hydro cycle. So it goes around and around. So let's start off in the ocean. And each year, the sun, with its heat, causes one metre of ocean to evaporate. So you have to think about atoms and molecules. What you've got there are individual ions or atoms of sodium and chloride and in between are boomerangs of H2O. That's what they look like, H2O, a little boomerang. And the boomerangs evaporate, leaving behind the heavier sodium and chloride. So straight away you've turned the salt water into fresh water again. So you're just continually recycling. So it's not as though we're going to run out of... Uh, water, because the plant's loaded with the stuff, and we're not going to run out of fresh water. What we're going to run out of is fresh water where we need it and at the time. So if you're in a drought right now, it's absolutely no use to you that six months later you got a flood when there's too much to have. And what you want is a constant assured supply of water. And it's got complicated because of the fact that global warming is real. And we knew about this in 1989. Uh, 30 years ago, the big fossil fuel companies are still denying it, like big tobacco denies that vaping is bad for you. So they're still denying it. But the point is that the weather bands are moving from the equator in the direction of the poles at 50 kilometres a decade... 500 kilometres a century. And what we need is government to think long-term as opposed to let's do something in the next six months or the next hour, but long-term and saying, okay, the weather bands are moving, the clouds are going to go here, we need this, we need a long-term solution. Is that kind of helping you there, Dr Mark? Or you, I didn't quite answer your question. Yeah. I think that is, that's helping. Yes, that answers the question. But does that make desalination a pretty definite part of our future? It doesn't have to be if you plan for the future. Desalination is quick and nasty and dirty, and in some cases, it's all you got. But if you were to plan, you would have a better, cheaper, long-term plan. Desalination, you just get absolute shirtloads of electricity and you throw it at water and you separate the chlorine and the salt, the chloride and the salt out. It's, it works. It's incredibly expensive. It works, but it's expensive. But you need a long-term plan rather than short-term plans. And so we need to realise that the weather bands are moving away from the equator at 50 kilometres a decade. And so Townsville, up in far north Queensland, is having problems because they're in a rain shadow and they're really, they've really been affected by it. So 100 kilometres with the rain shifting makes a huge difference. That's just two decades. Mm. 0439 757 555. On to Townsville where Dr Carl just mentioned. Dr Zoe, what's your question? Hi, Dr Carl. 
Um, I was just wondering why sometimes you remember your dreams at night and sometimes you don't remember them. In general, it's the length of time between your your dream and when you woke up that governs how well you remember it. If you wake up immediately after your dream, you remember it really well. But if you wake up halfway down the sleep cycle, an hour, half an hour, three quarters of an hour later, you're less likely to remember. I'm not a dream expert, so if somebody is a dream expert, please ring in. What's the magic number? Uh, please text in on 0439757555. And also, uh, could you tweet me an answer at Dr. Carl, D-O-C-T-O-R-K-A-R-L. Hey, Dr. George from Liverpool, you're up with a science question. Hi, doctors. How are we? Very good, Dr. George. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question is um, something new that I've heard about, and that is brain receptors in the gut and how that relates to the, the saying of, of gut feeling. Um, I've tried to find some info, but it's pretty hard or a topic that I can't get a lot of information on. I should be doing a story on that. I've been working that up as one of my many stories. Now, this is the weird thing. Now, I think I'm right. I'm, uh, serotonin is the brain hormone. I think I'm right. So either that or dopamine, I think I'm right with serotonin. Serotonin is used in the brain as a neurotransmitter. You send a signal from here to there, various things happen. 90% of it is manufactured in your gut. Isn't that weird? Mm. Why? We don't know. So the first thing to realise is you just don't have one brain. In your skull, you've got two brains, one on the left and one on the right with a tiny percentage of fibres joining them together. Then thirdly, you've got the brain in your spine, which runs your body. So when you touch something hot, your your spine says, stop touching that, uh, George, and by the way, please don't do it again. Your, later, your brain in the skull, the two brains say, don't touch it again. But the brain in your spine when you touch something hot, activates your biceps, it doesn't work and, and, and loosens your triceps. And then you've got the brain in your gut. So think about distributed intelligence. So we've got different brains around the place and we're still learning about it. Um, I share your pain and I'll try and get a story up on it on my Great Moments in Science show, which has been going for about a third of a century on the ABC. And Dr. Carl, in terms of there being a brain in your gut and in your spine mm. and kind of proof of that, is there any physicality that we can find that's like, oh, this is a physical part of the spine that controls this or oh, that? yeah, yeah well, that's well known. So you do that in first-year medicine. and so I, I haven't use, done my first-year medicine. Oh, no, I know, and I've forgotten it all. But if they'll, yeah, the, the examiners, so you have a combination of multiple-choice exams, written exams, mm -hmm. and then finally the examiner's asking you questions. And there's these two people just smiling at you, otherwise known as the living death, and they'll just keep on asking questions until you run out of knowledge. And occasionally you get these incredibly brilliant medical students um, who actually know so much about it that they can argue with the examiners and then prove them wrong. They're incredibly rare, but they end up becoming professors of cardiology or something like that. So um, they will say, and the answer is, oh, yeah, of course, um, the uh, biceps is governed by uh, C2 and C3 and the triceps by C3 and C4. I've got the name's wrong. I've forgotten it, trust me. But you have to know and be able to ripple that out. And then they'll say, but uh, your patient is having um, also got a neurological problem in their thumb and their index finger and half of their middle finger has lost sensation. And you say, oh, well, that of course is the blah, blah, blah. Nerve. So you and have they to can know. pinpoint where oh, it is. We, we, we did that beginning about two centuries ago with medical, oh, sorry, with uh, traumatic injuries in the battlefield.
Wow. A lot of medicine came to us from people being damaged in the war. I don't like wars, but you get a lot of knowledge. But I don't like wars. Dr. Braden from Sydney, what's your question about sleep? I'm struggling to, like, understand why I am always tired. I go to bed, I have within five and eight hours most nights, and I just always, I'm at work, flat out, tired. Um, The obvious thing is to go and see a GP, obviously, but also start a food diary of what you do and it's worthwhile speaking with a dietitian as opposed to a nutritionist, a real dietitian, um, uh, and do it for a month. And also um, start an exercise diary and then see your GP and then come with that to see them. It, it could be anything from you are suffering from severe sleep apnea and you don't know it and you're not getting a full night's sleep, all the way through to uh, too many, you could be iron you see a GP, take it from there. We're very lucky in Australia you can see GPs cheaply. Thanks, Thanks Dr Braden. Hey, Dr Ashley from Belrose, what's your question, Dr Ashley? Hey, Dr Linda and Dr Carl. Um, my question is, how come we are squeamish? Okay, evolution is happening all the time and roughly I've just discovered one in every 20 births has a child being born with jumping genes and I'll talk about that uh, on another occasion. But there are, I can see where you're coming from, and it's a really complex question. The answer lies in the field of evolutionary biology, as I keep on saying. Um, and there is an advantage to being squeamish in the following sense that if you see blood coming out of you, you react in a way to stop it happening or to avoid it happening again or to mitigate what's happening right here and now. Whereas if you just kept on bleeding away, you'd think, oh, yeah, I'm bleeding, oh, too bad. You see, there's a family of circus athletes in Pakistan who don't feel any pain and they can break their legs and they do and it can be the bone sticking out through the bare skin and they die from it. So there are advantages to feeling pain. There are advantages to being squeamish. Um, And it seems to be fairly universal. So maybe somebody can look up uh, evolutionary biology and see what the latest theory is so I can give you a proper uh, answer, Ashley, next time. Oh, speaking of answer, I've got to give an answer. Ashley, we're going to say goodbye. This is the answer about how you anaesthetise a fish. Oh, from um, from last week yeah, yeah. when we were, yeah. we had a, a a caller on asking about how you look after a fish on an operating table. Yeah. Do you put a tube in their mouth to keep them uh, breathing th- through water? Do you constantly run water over their gills? How does it work? Well, in this case, this is what we call in a trade ground truth. Not something you read on the internet, but something that you did yourself on spot physically there. And so in 1987 for three and a half weeks on Heron Island, says Gerald, I worked with a team of neurophysiology researchers doing stuff into the spinal cords, understanding the spinal cords of stingrays to ensure, to make sure that the immobilised and anaesthetised stingrays could continue to stay alive. They just got a bilge pump, just a little pump sucking up water. And they sucked up seawater and then ran across the operating table, uh, then onto the gills of the stingray, and there was enough oxygen going across one way and carbon dioxide at the other to keep them alive while they were unconscious. So presumably um, that was, well, it, it worked. 
So you just have to run water across their gills and providing they're not anaesthetised so deeply that the gills don't do don't stop their muscular thing, you can keep them alive. Thank you so much. And by the way, each stingray was suspended in a stereotaxi frame. That's the frame that locks them in place. Within a seawater bath was just the bit they were looking at, the spinal cord above the waterline. And then that exposed vertebral column was surrounded by a pool of paraffin oil for electrical insulation. And then the anaesthetic was, I wonder how you anaesthetise the fish, tuberocurarine, a variation on curare, the drug that they used in South America in the tips of the arrows, a version of curare in the water was the anaesthetic. Oh, so they put a little bit of anaesthetic in the water yeah. and then the fish absorb it. Yeah, they absorb it through the gills and then quickly then That was um, me deciphering the Yeah, trying to turn it into English. And and then, then yeah, look, thank you for turning it into English. Very hard. I was. And look, thank you for turning it into English. And then they just run seawater, fresh seawater, across the gills and there's enough exchange that the carbon dioxide goes one way, the water goes the other way, the oxygen goes the other way and they stay alive. See, Dr. Carl always does the homework well, that you always. set for him. <laughs> you try, you do very well. Well, Gerald did it for me. Thank you very much, Dr. Gerald. 0439757555 with your questions and comments. Speaking of people getting squeamish and mm-hmm. blood and, and not so much blood, Amanda from Coffs Harbour, you kind of had a follow-up question about the reason behind it. What was your question, Amanda? Yeah, hi, doctors. Um, Yeah, I was just curious if there was any scientific reason behind why some will faint at the sight of blood and others it doesn't so much bother. Ah. Fainting actually leaves you totally defenceless. So what's happening is that your blood pressure is dropping so low you haven't got enough blood to keep your brain going. Now, I can stab people all day and take blood from them, no worries. But if you stab me to take blood from me, I'm a fainter. So I just tell them every time I give blood, uh, I'm a fainter, I should lie down. And if you use the word fainter, they think, yeah, just lie down. It's easier than picking your unconscious body up off the floor and then you give the blood, okay? so Do you what, really faint? Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of grey out and I just go, I'm, I'm a wuss man. I can, I, 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 can, I can put it out, but I can't handle it. I can't take it. I'm a hypocrite. So getting back to this whole why we faint, it's real. We don't know why. But then there's other ones that are more useful. So, for example, I talk about this in my latest book, which has got the mini-me's popping up in the um, – you, you aim your camera at the, at the book and you see 30, a couple of dozen mini-me's popping up like Princess Leia. What book? This is uh, book number 45, uh, Dr. Carl's Random Road Trip Through Science. Um, anyway, so – but I talk about trypophobia where people are scared of holes. So there's some modern phones that have got not just one camera on the back but seven. And there's these seven holes looking at you. And a significant percentage of the population, one or two percent, feel disgust when they look at holes. They just do. Like, uh, obviously it's true because one of the Kardashians does it. So there, that proves it. That's scientifically proven by people with lab coats. So why? Well, it turns out that between the years 1000 and 2000 AD, of all the people who died on planet Earth, half were killed by smallpox. And smallpox put all these little marks, these pox, P-O-X, on your skin. And so if you're the sort of person who feels disgusted when you see it, you come up and you say, oh, look, Linda, how are you going? And then you look at your skin and you say, oh, my God, Linda, you've got all these marks on your skin. I'm disgusted and you run away. Then you probably won't get smallpox and you'll probably live. So there's an advantage to being squeamish and being having trypophobia. I can't see the advantage to fainting. But I haven't thought deeply enough. Somebody give me an answer. Oh four three nine seven five seven triple five to St Kilda with Dr April. What is your somewhat 
dark question. Dr. April. Good morning, doctors. Um, so my question was, if a human was to be pulled into a black hole and experience spaghettification, do we have any idea what would happen to their consciousness or would they die? We are going to find out so much about this. At the moment, the closest we've got to a black hole, in one sense, is taking a photograph of the event horizon of one 50 million light years away. Secondly, observing fairly closely the one at the centre of our galaxy, 26,000 light years away. And then finally, looking at the closest one to us, which is about 3,000 light years away. I reckon that we humans will start manufacturing black holes within a century and then we'll start finding out. Now, consciousness is the big one. Nobody's got any idea. Is consciousness something that is stored in your brain or is it stored through your whole body or is it something that wraps around us like a field through the universe and our brains are just switchboards? We don't have an answer to consciousness. We don't. I'm sorry, Dr. April. Would your consciousness survive after you go into a black hole? Now you've mixed two really heavy questions, don't have an answer, but is that is that sort of like but a start? Also, of, don't know. Dr. April did mention the thing that you taught us quite recently: the idea of spaghettification. The word spaghettification. The word spaghettification, and the idea of human bodies turning into spaghetti if they were to be Get thrown into a black hole, sure. which we would not survive. You, well, we don't know. Well, we, we don't know. No, you're almost we certainly don't. on the way in. It's looking messy. If, if, looking if your messy. body is getting like ten meters long, the uh, it's not looking good. No, okay. uh, but thank you, Dr. April, for thank reminding you, me April. of spaghettification. Uh, Dr. Susie from Sydney, what's your question? Oh, hi, doctors. I just wanted to know, I was with my little girl the other day and she asked about the stars. And I was wanting to know if there was a point where um, you stop seeing the stars in the southern hemisphere and start seeing the constellations of the northern hemisphere. Yes. So as you migrate from southern Australia towards the equator and then over into the north side, you start seeing a different bunch of stars. It turns out that the Earth is tilted at around 23.5 degrees from the vertical, the vertical being you know, related to kind of the equator of the sun-ish, where all the planets rotate roughly on the equator. And so... In the southern, in the Earth, you've got the southern part pointing at the centre of the galaxy. You do not get a good Milky Way. You go far north, like I've been up to Svalbard, which is 70 degrees north, where this is a fairly obscure record. They've got the world's northernmost statue of Lenin. I don't know why you have that as a record, but they just do it in a Russian <laughs> place. Anyway, and you, at night, forget it, no Milky Way. So as you walk across... So if you did the migration by foot, I mean, you could do it at roughly, going by my experience in Spain, 790 kilometres per five weeks, you would, if you stopped at a campfire every night, you would see this Milky Way gradually dropping lower and lower on the horizon until when you got into the North Pole, couldn't see it at all. Mm. So the, the, it's, not that like, it's not a sudden sharp cutoff, but you'll just see less and less of it until it drops below the horizon. Dr. Jacqueline from Melbourne, Hi. you're an are you an actual doctor? Yes. I, I am an actual doctor. An actual oh, doctor. Yay. Real doctor. Look, not just thank like you me. So much. It's a big one. 
Thank yeah, you so much for ringing in. We're very grateful because yeah. you're in the field and you've got the ground truth that's current as opposed to what I had from, wait for it, 1987. When we were talking about doing surgery on fish and how it works. Yeah. Yes. Please bring us up to yeah. date, Dr. Jacqueline. So uh, I'm an exotic pet vet. Um, so not all vets are created equal when it's not for uh, dogs and cats. So I do fish and exotic things. Hang on, let, so just hang on our... there for a second. So you're not just a vet. You've specialised into... Ve- uh, fish, but birds then birds and exotic pets, which is birds, rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, mice, lizards, turtles, snakes, fish, amphibians—you name it, we do it. But not dogs and cats. Wow, big it up for you. Okay, so I've never heard anybody call themselves, "Hey, I'm an exotic pet vet," but I, I now have. Go on, yep, thank you. Yes, uh, so we routinely see our people's pet fish, um, mm-hmm. and so when we need to do uh, anaesthesia, we actually use uh, injectable anaesthetics. Um, so they would get a, a pre-med, which just helps to sedate and relax the patient mm-hmm. um, and make sure that we've covered for potential pain. We use a water-soluble uh, anaesthetic drug, so something called uh, alfaxalone, mm-hmm. which we add increasing amounts to their water while bubbling oxygen through. And ah. it actually dissolves across the gills into the bloodstream and that's how it keeps the patient asleep. Ah, now you say you, dis- you, you bubble not just air, but actual oxygen into the water. Yes. Yeah, wow. so bubble oxygen in because mm-hmm. um, when you change the dissolved oxygen, that improves your, your patient's uh, stability. Mm-hmm. So once they're asleep, um, we make sure their depth is okay. We sort of check that they can't swim upright and look for reflexes. Mm-hmm. And then once you're happy, we can start our surgical procedure. And then while they're asleep, we use basically the, the anaesthetic water soaked in uh, special surgical towels so the patient can be out of the water but still moist. Uh, we don't want their gills to dry out. And then we basically use a, a small tube with the anaesthetic dissolved in the water and flush that through the mouth and it goes out over the gills. And we do that continuously while they're asleep. Um, and to wake them up, we basically just move them from water with anaesthetic to water without anaesthetic oh. and just protect them so that they don't bump into the sides while they're waking up. Wow, so okay, like now, such a cute, sweet I'll hit you with three questions. Pick them in any order you want. Number one... What sort of reflexes do you test on a fish? Like you can't do the knee tap because they don't have a knee. Secondly, yes. do the gills need any muscular activity? Like can you anesthetize them so much that their muscles don't work and this interferes with the gills? Do the gills need muscle activity or is it just simply enough to pump water with oxygen across them? Um, yeah, okay, just go with those two. So uh, the, in terms of the gills, uh, no, they don't usually need muscle things. So they're quite lightweight. Um, ah. And so as long as you've got water movement, you'll get quite passive diffusion of your, your drugs and things over it. The gills are hugely rich with single cell layers of red blood cells that run around the outside. And wow. so they absorb all of the medication and, and they go through back to the heart and then through the whole fish. Wow, so um, they so must no. have a tremendous surface area inside such a small organ to be able to have single Absolutely. blood cell layer exposure. Huge blood supply. Um, wow. So we, we often do little gill clips to look for parasites and, yeah, they're fabulous to look at under a microscope. Worth Googling that image. Um, in terms of reflexes, the main one we're looking for is the writing reflex, which in a, you know, a lizard, for example, if it's standing upright, normally when it's asleep... You lay it on its back, it doesn't know that it has to flip back over. So in a fish, we're looking at, you know, how level is your fish? Is it straight up in the water or is it starting to drift a little sideways? 
And then because they need that conscious control to, to know which way is up and stay you know, straight in their water column, they start to sort of fall over on their side. Okay, then a practical question. Suppose you've had to cut something out of the fish to and then sew it up again. What do yeah. you use for stitches? Yeah. Uh, usually we use uh, PDS, um, which is a, a dissolvable uh, suture. You can also use uh, tissue glue, but fish are remarkably good at healing. Um, often, you know, it doesn't take very much to, to close a wound on a fish compared to what you would do on a, on a mammal. Um, so even though they, they live in water and they're swimming in their own uh, waste products and, and food products and everything else, um, they are incredibly good at healing. So, yeah, usually just standard dissolvable stitches, um, but they dissolve at different rates in my patients because they're designed, of course, for human skin. Oh, I'm so touched by the way you call them, not clients, not customers, not animals, but your patients. I love that word because it shows a different relationship. Like on aeroplanes, I like to be a passenger, not a customer. It's a different need. And I'm just so touched by the way you call your little fishies your patients. I know. Owning the the Bird and Exotic Animal Clinic in Melbourne. Thank you, Dr. Jacqueline Howe. Enlightening. Hey, Dr. Carl, that pretty much brings us to the end of Talking Science this week. Oh, but I've learned so much with some of the answers. Dr. Jacqueline, man, she rocks. I know. Get her in as a guest. I told you, we need to do the animal uh, special at some point. We do. We must, perhaps Give us a ring, Dr. Jackie. Soon. It's Dr. Carl, Chatting Science. I'm Linda Mariano. And if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to take a second to rate, review, and subscribe for way more apps. Thank you for listening to this one.